It's time for Thursday Night Talk. Sharon Fennell is our host tonight. two joints at night. I smoke two joints in the afternoon. It makes me feel all right. I smoke two joints in time of peace and two in time of war. I smoke two joints before I smoke two joints and then I smoke two more. He smoked two joints and the rest, as they say, is history. Jason Flom got his first job interview at Warner Communications while under the influence, and that would lead him to the famous and amazing Atlantic Records, where he served as chairman and CEO, in addition to many other chairmanships at several record labels. He is currently CEO of Lava Records. If the names Tori Amos, Jewel, Kid Rock, Coldplay, Lenny Kravitz, Katy Perry ring a bell, well, those are some of Jason Flom's discoveries. And then one day... Jason would discover something completely different. Mr. Flom, welcome to the airways of KHSU in Humboldt County, California. It's very nice to be speaking with you this evening. Thank you. It's very nice to be speaking with you. Um, to, to be fair, I did not actually discover Coldplay um, or Lenny Kravitz. I inherited them. The other ones I certainly did discover and many others, but uh, I just did want to clear the air on that. But anyway... Uh, so especially since it's Humboldt County, right? That's right. That's why I said KHSU in Humboldt County. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but by the way, the choice of music was Thank just uh, breathtaking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was very, very, what a great song. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, after, after exploring uh, all about you, I figured I could get away with that easily. All right. Oh, yeah. so, so how does a guy who's steep in the recording industry end up working for the benefit of people in this country who have been wrongfully convicted. So, like, when and what stirred you? Well, it actually started um, it, it, it's quite uh, serendipitously. I read a story in the newspaper in 1992. I just happened to pick up the paper on my way to go to the gym, and it was this the headline, um, Ferraro bid for uh, druggy parole or something like that, coke guy parole. And I, I, I read the story, and there was a story about a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession mm-hmm. charge. And the reason it was in the paper was because Geraldine Ferraro, who was the first woman ever to be nominated to be vice president of the United States for a major political party, had taken up the cause of this kid who was nobody from middle of nowhere, but he was sentenced to this crazy sentence for a nonviolent first offense, and his mother had been trying to get clemency from Governor Cuomo, his governor Mario Cuomo, father of the current governor, mm-hmm. and Cuomo had turned it down, even though the judge and the, and the warden and all these other people in Jersey for had written letters on his behalf. And I read this story, and it just freaked me out, because I was like, oh, 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense? Yeah. I was like, it doesn't make any damn sense. How could that even be? And so it upset every fiber of my being, and I decided I had to do something about it. So long story short, I ended up getting the only criminal defense lawyer I knew, a guy named Bob Kalina, who represented two of my artists at the time, Skid Row and Stone Double Pilots, who were getting arrested a lot, um, like weekly. <laughs> so I called Bob, I said, can you do anything about this? He said, there's nothing you can do, it's crazy drug laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he agreed to take the case pro bono as a favor to me, and we ended up in a courtroom five months later in Malone, New York. I sat there holding Mrs. Lennon's hand as her son was brought in in shackles. And the judge ruled in our favor and reduced the charges and said he was to be freed. And I just, 
I was like, that's the greatest feeling I've ever had. I'm going to do more of that. Know. You know, that, that was that was the that was the Eureka moment for me. Yeah. You know, the next town over is Eureka, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you know no, that. That's, that's, <laughs> no, I didn't, but now yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you still in touch with that young man? Uh, I spoke to his mom recently, actually. I haven't spoke to him in, in a long time. I used to. You know, it's funny. I, I, I told the story recently because I gave a TED Talk from a maximum security prison in Uganda um, two weeks ago or a week ago. Wait, wait. Did you say and, a maximum security prison in Uganda? Yeah, yeah, um, uh, it's called, um, it's in Kampala, and uh, it's called uh, Luzira Prison, yeah. It was an event with the African Prisons Project, which is a wonderful organization. Um, but in the talk, I was mentioning how um, after, uh, six months after Stephen was released, I got a letter in the mail from a woman whose name I didn't recognize, and it was from Cincinnati, Ohio. Name was Joanne something, and I opened the letter, and the first line was, "You don't, dear Jason, you don't know me, but you got me pregnant." What? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Wait, wait a minute, was I was I in Cincinnati like a year and a half ago?" I started doing the math. I'm like, "What the hell?" And then it goes on to say, um, "You know, she she goes on to say that she's Stephen's sister, and that for five years she and her husband have been trying to get pregnant, but the stress of her brother's incarceration had been preventing uh-huh. this from happening, and now she was pregnant. And she oh, wow. Like, oh, that's a great story. That's a very that's great a, story, yes. That's a good story, yeah. It definitely uh, shook me up. But anyway, so the... Um, um, and he was in touch for a while, but you know, it doesn't need to be in touch. I mean, if I was in touch with all the different people yeah. I've worked with over yeah. the years, yeah. I would have no time to talk to you. I, I you can know, relate. I, I truly understand. Um, but the, but the, you know, what happened next was after I joined the board of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and, and media is so important in all of this, right? I read the story about Stephen in the newspaper. Then I read about Families Against Mandatory Minimums in a Rolling Stone article about the LSD bus at the Grateful Dead concert. I joined their board, and then I was at my in-laws' house, and I was bored because when you're at your in-laws' house, you're bored, right? And <clears throat> and I was looking for something to watch on TV, and I saw the story of a guy named David Keaton who was sentenced to death for a crime he didn't commit, and was scheduled to be executed shortly uh, after this, uh, um, around the date of this time this thing was running. But a new organization called the Innocence Project had taken his case and found the DNA, just in the nick of time, like in the movies, that proved that he was innocent and had led to his exoneration um, and freedom for this guy who would have otherwise been executed. And I said, oh, my God, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I'm, I'm in. So I, I called up. I went in to meet with the two founders, because in those days, you know, I went in there, and there was only two people working there. It was Barry Sheck and Peter, Peter Newfield. Newfield. And, then, yeah. Yeah. and they had a briefcase and a little office and a dream. And I said, I'll do whatever you guys want. I'm in. And I became the founding board member. And that's 25 years ago, and, mm. and it's been an unbelievable journey ever since then. No doubt. And, you know, because we have the better part of an hour, um, uh, Jason, feel free to tell us stories um, as, as we go through our conversation, because um, people need to hear them for sure. Um, you're quoted as saying that the work you do, it's all under the umbrella of mass incarceration, which is a uniquely American and terrible problem and um, I could not agree more and by the way Jason um, we have many men tuned in right now listening from Pelican Bay State Prison any words of hope or care for them 
Well, I just want them to know that there's a lot of people out here um, who care and who are uh, who are not forgetting about them and who want to see them home and reunited with their families um, and, and who recognize that this is a travesty. And, uh, you know, and it's something that needs to change. And I think there's a lot of momentum on our side, finally. After all these years of doing it, it seems like there's more of a, a movement now than ever towards a sensible approach to, you know, uh, the criminal, criminal justice or criminal injustice or whatever you want to call it in mm-hmm. this country. And, and it is nuts because, as you know well, you know, we locked up, well, I mean, the numbers are, the numbers speak for themselves, right? We have 2.2 million people in prison yeah. in America, right? So we lock people up at five times the rate per capita of the rest of the Western world, 14 times the rate of Japan. Right? Japan has more or less 70,000 people in prison in the whole country. I mean, mm-hmm. that's probably the size, that's about like a normal, like mid-sized state in America. Um, and and they have no crime problem, you know. It doesn't. It, 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 there's no correlation between mass incarceration and, re, and reduction in crime. There's no there's no social scientist that would make that case. In fact, it's been disproven over and over again. And then it gets worse when you look at the numbers in terms of you know we have four point. Everyone talks about we have four point four percent of the world's population and twenty five percent of the world's mm-hmm. prison population. Mm-hmm. But then it gets worse when you look at it in terms of how, the, 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 you know. The demographics of those people, right? Then taking away the, the the racist, the racial element of it, just the fact that we have thirty three percent of the world's female prison population should make anyone sick. I know, right? It's like, and it's growing. It, it's, it's it's the fastest growing segment of the world of the prison population. And these are women, these are people who, by and large, are nonviolent. They're in for drug crimes or other ridiculous things, um, and. Most of them have children. Yep. So, you know, the, the disruption that it causes in, in communities is, is just, in, yeah, it's, it's unreal. And, of course, then, then you look at it on the, on the racial breakdown. I read somewhere that we incarcerate black males at six times the rate per capita of South Africa at the height of apartheid. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that... And that is really, you know, and it's interesting, right? I just came from Uganda and Kenya, and I, I went to the high court in Kampala. I got to watch some of the proceedings there. I was in a prison in, like I said, I spoke at a maximum security prison uh, in, in Uganda, which, uh, was, which was an interesting experience, too. I yeah, mean, it's I want to hear about built, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so it was built in colonial times for 600 inmates, and now it has 3,500 inmates. So Whoa. there are some, there's some cells where... They have to sleep like sardines. They they have to let everyone has to lay on the same side, facing the same way, and they have to roll over at the same time. Because think about it. I mean, it's at what's that? Uh, almost seven times capacity, right? Yeah. Six hundred would be uh, um, six times the capacity. It's insane. So, um, but the uh, you know the court system there, watching the proceedings there, was a, was certainly an eye opener. It was as as backwards as you might think it would be. The defense lawyers in the three hearings that I watched never said a word. But then you look at it in the way that we conduct ourselves here, and let's not forget that we have 
right now a lawsuit going on in Texas where a public defender was thrown off a murder trial by the judge because he was trying too hard. Hmm. I mean, that, let's just reflect on that for a second. The yeah. judge said, you're trying too hard. I'm not going to tolerate this. You want to hire an investigator. You want to mount the proper defense for your client. You're mm. spending too many hours. And, you know, that's a crazy thing, right? It's an, it's an under... Uh, under-covered, uh, uh, you know, under-discussed type of thing, right? Yeah. Is that in so many places in America, the, the public defenders are appointed by the judges. And if they don't just sort of process people into prison, they don't get assigned cases. And then that, and take away the fact that they're overworked anyway and underpaid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's that wonderful movie, Gideon's, um, um, Gideon's Army. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm -mm. But it's, oh, it's an amazing look at the public defender system. I think it's in Georgia based. And you see this public defender who's actually very, very capable and, you know, very, <clears throat> and, and really cares about her client. And she's literally pulling quarters out of the creases in, in her, you know, couch or their car to try to get enough money for gas to get to court because they're making, they're so terribly underpaid. So it's a, it's a noble profession. A lot of them are incompetent, but a lot of them are mm. very good. And, but they still, they're, they're handling, you know, look, in, in Louisiana, right? And it's yeah. more numbers. And I fucking talk about numbers all night long. But in Louisiana, there was that horrible situation where 60 Minutes covered it, where you had 51 public defenders who handled 20,000 cases that particular year. I think it was 2016. So that's 400 yeah. each. And the courts are closed on the weekends, so the, that, that sounds a lot like two a day. I mean, are, are they really supposed And so, so what happened was the, the head of the Public Defenders Association, or whatever they call that, refused to hear, to, let, he refused to let any of his attorneys handle uh, uh, felony cases until they gave him more attorneys. Because I'm not just going to process people into prison. But that's what it's come to in America. Yeah. It's very... It's it's very it's uh it's sad is not even the right word for I it. Know, I know, I <laughs> know. I gotta hold my tongue sometimes uh how I feel about it. I, I really appreciate your passion, um uh, in in this, I really do. You sit on on a zillion boards and organizations that deal with the incarcerated, and in particular, those wrongly accused. We've touched on the Innocence Project, but I want to I want to list the ones that I've gleaned um, in researching you and your work. Um, by the way, I want to give a shout out to my great niece Suad Yagmor who from Brooklyn texted me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, I just read about this guy, Jason Flum, and he reminded me of you, Auntie. So <laughs> I Googled and I said, oh, man, I want him for my next show. So you're here because oh. of my, my great niece, Suad, living in Brooklyn. But, well, but shout um, out to your great niece. Absolutely. And I, it and, I, and I feel uh, very uh, humbled about the whole thing. Yeah. And so, but I want to go through the organizations that I've been able to, to, to find because I want my people listening, our, our audience, to hear about some of these places and maybe they will look them up and get interested uh, to do some work because we all, we really all are have to be a part of the fix otherwise, you know. So we talked about the Innocence Project and Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield and Jim Dwyer who, you know, I've been supporting a little bit here and there, the Innocence Project money-wise, uh, since I ever heard about it. 
many years ago when um, um, I'll get to that a little later when somebody close to my heart was doing time. Uh, you're a board member of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. So tell, tell our listeners what, what is meant by a mandatory minimum? So mandatory minimums were created uh, by Congress decades ago. Uh, and when they originally created, the thought was, well, they, they, they don't really want to have the same crime in two different jurisdictions and different judges. And one guy, because he gets a judge who's more lenient, mm-hmm. gets a much different sentence than a guy who's more conservative or however you want to look at it. So the Congress decided they would set mandatory minimums that would, you know, give guidelines to the judges. Unfortunately, they gave guidelines that only, well, it's just what it sounds like, mandatory minimums. It wasn't mandatory maximums, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, if you take a, a positive view of it, Congress was trying to even the playing field, right? That would be, maybe that's a little Pollyanna-ish, yeah. but that in theory, was what they were doing. But what happened was, once they got a hold of this, the politicians started saying, well, especially the Republicans, if we just keep making tougher and tougher sentences, we can run on that. And we can run against guys and say they're soft on crime if we just keep saying we want to raise sentences and raise this and we're going to make it tougher. So they started passing all these crazy mandatory sentencing laws, including the one, the Rockefeller drug laws. Yeah. That which is a New York State one, which was the original case that I got involved with Stephen Lennon, who was a victim of those laws. And so it, it got to be a like an arms race almost, and it got to be more and more insane where they set mandatory sentences for so many different crimes, and they basically took away the ability of judges to right. judge. Right. And they gave all that power to the prosecutors. So what happens is, and you know, the men or men and women who are listening in prison probably know this all too well, is that it gave the, the, the prosecutor the ultimate power because they could yeah. come to you and say, Sharon, listen, you know what? Um, first of all, you know, if you don't plead guilty, you're facing 40 years minimum, right? And if you plead guilty, we'll give you five years. And you could be sitting there, see, you haven't even met your public defender yet, or maybe you've met them and you realize that they are not capable of defending you properly. And you're not going to roll the dice. <clears throat> so, you know, you have famous cases like Brian Banks in California, right, who took a five-year sentence because his lawyer said, I'm going to lose. He said, I'm not, I, 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 I don't think we're going to win this case. You're going to get 25 years to life. What, what was he going to do with this? Sophie's choice, right? So these mandatory sentencing laws were a disaster. And I gave a presentation to the Democratic Policy Committee of the Senate in the United States Senate years ago. And I brought with me a federal judge, federal judge Castillo was the vice chairman of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And he said, listen, he goes, I was a tough, I used to be a prosecutor, so I was the toughest prosecutor in Chicago. He says, I, I, I had hits taken out of my life by drug dealers. He says, you think I like drug dealers? He says, but let mm. me tell you something. I've never seen a kingpin in my courtroom. And furthermore, he says, you elected me unanimously to do the hardest job that any human being can do, which is to sentence another human being to go to prison. And then you took away my ability to do my job. Mm-hmm. He says, I, I sit there and I just process people. I just have to look at the chart. I mean, I'm paraphrasing now because it was years ago. But, you know, and, you know, you just you sit there and go, I mean, this is ridiculous. Like, we might as well tell doctors how to prescribe to patients, right? How to, like, 
It doesn't make any sense. How is Congress going to tell a judge? And, I, and there's so many cases where a judge, I've seen cases so many where a judge will say, I wish I could give you probation, mm-hmm. but i got to give you 20 years. Yeah. Mm, mm, and I had one guy I talked to shortly after he got out and said, you know what, I was prepared to accept, I was guilty, he said, I was prepared to accept whatever sentence the judge wanted to give me, but I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah. For the judge to say, I wish I could give you a lesser mm-hmm. sentence, but I can't. Yeah. And it doesn't allow any flexibility for a judge to say, well, this guy was only sitting in the car, or this one was, or this woman was only the girlfriend of the, you know, whatever. Or so it, it's a, it's a, it turned out to be a terrible, terrible policy. And I worked with Senator Durbin, who was my favorite senator. Yeah, um, I like him too. Senior senator from Illinois. I worked with him years ago on the bill that, um, <clears throat> which was the first bill. It was the, it was the crack cocaine uh, a bill where we reduced the yeah. crack cocaine sentences from 101, 100 to one disparity used to be versus uh, uh, cocaine, regular cocaine. Um, we went from one hundred one down to eighteen to one, which is still ridiculous because yeah. they're pharmaceutically identical. But you know, you know where that comes from. I do, and we'll and, get to that. We sure will. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So, but it's ridiculous that that wasn't done retroactively too. I mean, how do you, how do you, how would you like to be the last guy sentenced under the old, under the old law? And you got twenty five years, but you know that if you've been sentenced a week later or a day later, you live that four years. Yeah, yeah. I indeed. mean, indeed. So there is that guy exists. That guy's out there. He might be, he might be listening to the show right now. Man, man. Or that woman, whoever it is. I mean, it's like I, I don't get that. How can it be? How can we say the law is not okay? But back then it was okay, and it's yeah. still okay. Yeah. So I was really, um, you know, I worked very hard with uh, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers to try to, you know, to advocate for as many clemencies from President Obama as we could possibly get for those people, among others. Yeah, I realize it doesn't you, make any sense. Yeah, I just realized your your, your father, your late father, was a, a, a famous attorney. So, sounds to me like you have a little bit of that in your in your DNA. You know, I mean, because I, I, you know, I often wonder what gets people like you or like me on this path. And um, so, but um, you're also the founder of. <laughs> the Bronx Freedom Fund and the Bronx Defenders, and I bring well, no, it- not, not, the, not the Bronx Defenders. I'm the, I'm the co-founder of the Freedom Fund, but the Bronx Defenders was in existence for many years before I got involved. Um, I'm from the Bronx, so when I read that, <laughs> oh nice, yeah, I'm born and raised. So when I read that, I thought, oh, there's a man of my heart right there, you know. So how did you, how did you, you know, what is the Bronx Freedom Fund? And, uh, you know, tell us about that. So the Freedom Fund came from a meeting I had uh, about 11 or 12 years ago with a woman named Robin Steinberg. And Robin is the founder and the head of the Bronx Defenders, which is basically like the legal aid organization in the Mm -hmm. Bronx that uh, does more than just typical defenders work. They're also, uh, they also do social work, they do other things, they do outreach. And so when we were having breakfast, she was explaining to me that there were thousands of people every year that were going to Rikers Island just yeah. because they couldn't post bail mm-hmm. in minor cases, um, misdemeanors, nonviolent felonies, etc. And Rikers Island, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is one of the most dangerous prisons in the world. Uh, it's a jail, 
but it's, it's technically a jail, but it's still a, an extremely chaotic and dangerous um, place. It's worse than any of the maximum security prisons in New York State. So I said, well, wait a minute. It's ridiculous that these people are going to Rikers Island because they can't post bail of $500, 750 whatever the hell it might be. So I said, what if we were to take some money and give it to you and you put it in the hands of your own attorneys and they post bail for their own clients in these cases? So she said, yeah, let's do it. I said, great. So we created the Freedom Fund. My dad put up half of the money to start it. I raised the other half. We started it with a very small amount of money, only like $200,000. And we've bailed out over 1,000 people now. 97% of them have shown up for every court date. And some of them have 15 court dates, because you know what happens is they play these games, right, where <clears throat> you go to jail, you say, they say you're pretty guilty, no, I'm plead innocent, I'm innocent. They bring you to court for a hearing, maybe it's a week later, a month later, whatever it is, and then the prosecutor says, well, I'm not really ready, Your Honor, I need a delay. Say, so, okay, come back in three, four weeks, whatever it is. And you go back to jail, you're sitting there, and your life is getting away from you. You're, you're, you know, you, you lose your job, you could lose custody of your kids. You could lose your place, your, your, your residence, because um, these are people who are living on the margins anyway, right? And so you have one choice, which is to plead guilty. And so the whole idea is if we bail these people out, or if they were able to bail themselves out, or if there wasn't money bail in the first place, which there shouldn't be, then these problems wouldn't exist. Yeah. You know, you go home, you go to your job, you go to your school, you go to your whatever place of worship, whatever you have, right? You just go on with your life, and then you show up for court. And then you're either guilty or you're innocent, and you keep it moving. So that was the whole idea. Now, the good news is it's been replicated. It's such a great success. It's been replicated in uh, dozens of other cities and counties. And now we're taking it national. There's now a national bail fund that Robin is running. A guy named Mike Novogratz is the, is the head of it, uh, who's an amazing guy, very successful guy, who's you know really taken this issue to heart. So... Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of movement, as you know, in this um, bail reform, Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, in the area of bail reform nationally. Yeah, it's a movement. And, and, and you know what? Uh, it, it didn't come soon enough, although it was in existence prior to Khalif Browder, who, uh, you know, in 2010 at age 16 ended up on Rikers Island uh, for a an alleged stolen backpack, which he maintained his innocence. And um, he stayed there for three years. And I kept thinking to myself, when that story broke, wasn't there anybody who could have bailed him out? You know, somebody. It wasn't that much money. And, you know, so I'm, I think it's one of the best things is these bail funds. But I also think we need to get rid of bail altogether because it only harms the poor and benefits people with with resources they don't they don't go to prison they don't go to jail whatever so uh that's what i think i think we got to end the bail system it's just extortion of, for people who can course, least afford of, it of course we do i mean it's just we have two separate systems of justice uh one if you're rich and one if you're poor and it, it's it's a fundamental inequity it's, it's un-american it's inhuman it's inhumane and it's also unconstitutional and Khalif Browder, you know, he slipped through the cracks. You know, the, his bail was $2,500, which it should not have been. And we are only allowed to bail people out with a bail of $1,500 or less. So oh, he would what? Not have, 
My yeah, I think that's wow. I think the state only allows that. Yeah, so yeah. so it's just it's like a, it's just an extra tragedy, and his he will haunt me till the day I die because yeah, me too. It's just the most it's the most horrible story. The kid was arrested for stealing a backpack. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And and he was and he didn't do it in the first yeah. place. They yeah. dropped the charges ultimately, and he. You know, he yeah. couldn't survive the trauma that he went through because, That's like I right. said, Rikers Island is hell. But yet, back to bail, right? How is it possible? Like, okay, so bail, first of all, it's a, money bail is a violation of the Sixth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. Equal protection and due process, it is neither. And there's a guy named Alec Karkatsanis, who I provided the seed funding for his organization, the Civil Rights Corps. And the Civil Rights Corps has been suing cities and counties all over the country and winning every time on exactly that basis, that that money bail is a violation of the 6th and the 14th Amendment. And he's been winning in conservative places, been winning all over the place. He recently won a huge lawsuit in San Francisco, which is going to create a sea change in the way bail is done in California. Now the California DA's Association is opposing it, and they're trying to use some technicality to have it, to take the teeth out of the change. But there was a huge win in Houston and in other places that, Harris County that have to let thousands of people, you know, not go through this. And don't forget, a lot of people that are bail hearings, there, there's even a judge there. There's even a lawyer there. Some of, you know, some of the smaller counties, there's just like a magistrate or something, or some of them are done over video. And it's like, what, what, what does that mean? You know, you know, we have a saying in this movement, right, which is that a system in which Robert Durst goes home and Sandra Bland goes to jail is a broken system. Yeah. Right, yeah. Robert Durst, who was accused and actually was guilty of murdering and dismembering his next door neighbor, on bail was set at two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and he was like, "You want cash or a check?" Yeah, you know, he has a local connection up here in Humboldt. Did you know that, Robert Durst? No. Yeah, he no. he lived up some some place called Trinidad over here, a very beautiful place, way back when. Go ahead, yeah, I, I digress. <laughs> no, uh. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so look, it's, I mean, and I want to put in a plug because I talk about these. I use my Instagram as a as a platform to to spread awareness about these issues. And if people are listening, they want to follow me. It's at it's Jason Plomp at that at ITS Jason Plomp. But um, that's my preferred form of communication. And so yeah, the, the, the bail thing it, it's it's absolutely insane. And it's like we we have as we're sitting here now talking is about 450,000 people in America in jail Mm -hmm. just because they're too poor to post bail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and inside of that, inside of those numbers, it's just so many human tragedies, Um, people dying in these jails and people going, I mean, it's just, and it's so nuts. I mean, you know, in New York, if you get arrested and you go to jail, you go to Rikers, and then they say, well, bail's, a thousand dollars, and you go. Well, I got a thousand dollars in my coat, and like, but your coat's in the evidence room, and you go like, well, I've only, uh, oh, there, you know, you, how you have to check your stuff when you go. So I want to go get it. They go, no, you can't go get it until you get out. You can't have it. Mm-hmm. Then you, and then your brother or your uncle or your sister shows up, and they say, well, let me get it. And they go, no, you can't have it. I mean, it's like, <clears throat> and then there's the thing of like the phone call. I worry about this too, right? Like. Who remembers phone numbers anymore? If you get arrested and they take <laughs> your phone away, they yep. say you have a phone call. Who are you going to call? Yep. Like people, should, people, if you're listening, tell your kids, tell yourself, mm-hmm. have numbers memorized. That's right. That's Put right. In your, 
like memorize numbers. Nobody remembers numbers anymore. <laughs> you don't truth. need to. It's in your phone, right? Yeah. These are practical problems. And another thing I want to say, because I say it on my podcast all the time, is if you're a listener right now, and there's a chance that someday you're going to be arrested for something you didn't do, or somebody you love is going to be arrested for something they didn't do. Don't say anything. What I mean by that is that they're not your friends. Mm. If they bring you in, they say, listen, we just want to talk to you, whatever. A lot of people wave their Miranda rights and they go, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything, so I'll talk to them and they'll let me go home. The only thing you say in that situation is, this is my name, this is my address, and I want a lawyer. And then clam up, shut up. It's not good talk because anything you say can be used against you, and they will twist it. And they will trick you, and they will threaten you, and they will lie to you. And the next yeah. thing you know, you'll be confessing to kidnapping the Lindbergh baby or yeah. killing Abraham Lincoln yeah. or whatever. You yeah. just don't do it. Yeah. So, and you're not exaggerating. Heart. This is this is true stuff. I know a, num- a number of people who have shared their stories uh, just like that. Yeah, yeah. And now, yeah, all the, false, the false confession thing is, is a major, yeah. major problem. Yeah. Well, and I, and I want to say to the audience that's listening, and thank you for giving me the platform, Everyone who's listening right now, everyone that works at the at the station, the studio, um, is is someone who someday, including you and me, we're going to get one of those letters in the mail that none of us wants. It's going to be a jury duty notice, <laughs> and you're going to go, oh, I mean, I can hear people groaning right now. Oh, Jesus, I'm so busy, I can't go. I don't want to go. First of all, go because if you're listening to this show, you're woke. And you need to be on a jury because it's somebody, somebody's loved one is going to be in that defendant's box. And they need to have somebody like you who actually understands these issues. And when you're on the jury, and the reason I do, one of the reasons I do my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, is because I want people to understand how common these wrongful convictions are and how they happen. And some of the reasons why they happen include lying prosecutors. Who, who cheat and break the rules and lie about evidence and things like that. Not all of them, but some of them. Enough, enough. I absolutely. Uh, and 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 uh, I and I have this all laid out, uh, Jason. So first, I want to tell our listeners because it's been a while that I am speaking with Jason Flom. He's a um, hotshot record producer guy for sure. I say that with love, and. Um, uh, head of uh, Lava Records at the current moment in time, but also uh, a great philanthropist that I like to say puts his money where his heart is. And I I think that's very important. So if you're out there and you want to talk to, uh, can I call you Jason? Yeah. All righty. If you want any questions for Jason or any comments, you can call us now at 707-826-4805 or 1-800-640-5911. Or if you're super shy and you don't want to talk to the handsome Michael that's our engineer tonight, you can text 492-KHSU and put your question that way. Um, I wanted to not let this conversation go without acknowledging uh, your being a board member of one of my favorite organizations, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, founded uh, by my friend Scott Budnick, who has been um, on my show. Um, you wouldn't know this, Jason, but I, <laughs> I hosted a radio show here for 35 years, almost 36, and just retired a year and a half ago. And... Um, 
Scott Budnick was a frequent guest on my show, which is heard, like I said to you before, by the men up in Pelican Bay State Prison. And I love the work that the uh, Anti-Recidivism Coalition does. It's hands-on, direct action, um, making lives better. So how'd you get, how'd you get on that board? Uh, Scott and I were introduced by a very, very dear friend of mine. He's almost like an adopted son, Kevin Weaver, who introduced us, and we, uh, we hit it off, obviously. I mean, he's, you know, he and I are sort of, he's like West Coast, I'm East Coast. He's a movie guy, I'm a record guy. But both of us have found our calling in life, which is to mm-hmm. help, you know, end mass incarceration and, and help the men and women who have been victims of that, you know, terrible uh, failed policy, yeah. um, which I think is the worst social policy disaster in this country since slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the war on drugs being a part of it. Yeah. Uh, so, so Scott and I have, you know, obviously we have everything in common, and he's a guy I have, you know, it's just the unbelievable amount of respect for. I mean, he, he is a guy who walks the walk. And he has done incredible things. And, uh, yeah, so that's why it seems only logical for me to join his board. It's amazing how we find one another, I have to say. Um, You know, I've met some of the most amazing and beautiful people in this, doing this work uh, that I could could never have dreamed of and it's it's been quite a journey and now I can include you among those those good people. I want to talk about your podcast Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom that would be you. Um what what's it about? Uh when did you start this and as you would learn about the circumstances of these cases, you know, all the people that you interviewed, how how did that affect you? So I'm glad you asked and thank you for that. So I've been very focused for a long time now on helping the exonerees after they are released from prison, not only exonerees, but in particular exonerees, mm-hmm. uh, because they face what I call the second punishment, yeah. which is coming out and then trying to figure out what the hell to do in a world that's moved on without them. And, you know, our prisons, by and large, there's not a lot of education, there's not a lot a lot of rehabilitation, there's basically punishment. And so, and even if that weren't the case, you come out and you've got to, you know, write a resume and try to figure out how to get a job and you've got to connect with family if you have any, you've got to find housing, you've got no money. Like it's, you know, it's a, it's a second punishment. So, so I started something called the Life After Exoneration Program at the Innocence Project to help deal with these issues, and uh, I founded a thing that's now become known as the Innocence Network Conference, which is a weekend uh, where we bring together exonerees from all over the country and parts of the world to to meet and, and be together and learn from each other, gain strength, and there's social workers and there's activists and there's lawyers and there's all kinds of people in the movement there, and it's an amazing, amazing event. So I learned so much from being around these extraordinary people who've been through this, this unbelievable ordeal and come out, you know, with grace and courage and their spirits intact. And so it was only logical for me to want to help tell their stories. So I started this podcast about a year and a half ago called Wrongful Conviction, and now it's been downloaded about four million times or streamed. And, um, and each week I interview 
a man or woman who was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to life in prison, death, you know, or, or decades, and, and served, you know, huge amounts of time in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Sometimes I interview people in prison, um, if the prison will allow me in, uh, once I know that there's overwhelming evidence of innocence, um, and to try to bring attention to their cases. Lamont McIntyre was one of those, and he was released um, weeks after the podcast aired. Now, we knew he was going to have a hearing coming up, and so his lawyers reached out to me and asked to get some more exposure for the case, and I was happy to do it. I'm really happy he's home. He's prison for 23 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it, it's, a, it's an amazing thing for me to be a part of. It puts so much gratitude in my attitude. I, I get to spend time with the people I most want to spend time with, which are these people who have been through, like I said, this just absolutely indescribably terrible ordeal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it really puts everything in perspective. So, um, so, it's, so I'm really, you know, and, and along the way, like I said, I, I educate, you know, my goal is to educate the public so that these things don't happen as frequently in the future. So the people like you people who are listening now, when you're on a jury, you understand that just because somebody's up there telling you this guy did this and that and the other thing, and I know that because I worked for the FBI or I was a forensic guy at this and that or I was this or I'm a prosecutor. You know, you have to really dig deep and look beneath the surface and see, are they telling the truth? They're supposed to. They're sworn to. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times they're not. Mm-hmm. And I've... so if I can prevent one wrongful conviction from happening by virtue of doing this podcast, then it'll be worth, you know, all the time and trouble. Oh, but you bet it will. On a, just on a side note here, I've, I've been called to jury duty, I can't tell you how many times, and I've never been chosen. Because, you know, when they ask you these questions, I have to answer them truthfully. <laughs> so they're like, nah, we don't want her on our jury. She asks too many questions or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. It goes like that. Yeah, they're not going to pick me either, unfortunately. Although, you know, I mean, I hope they do someday. But um, I would love for you to share a little bit of the story I listened to today with my husband about Malcolm Alexander, who spent 38 precious years of his life in a prison in Louisiana. Was that Parchment Farm? Do I remember that? Was it Parchment Farm? Uh, Malcolm Alexander. Oh, oh, I'm it. Okay. Um, So Malcolm Alexander is on my podcast, as he said, to speak. Extraordinary guy from Louisiana. His trial lasted less than one day. Repeat that. Repeat that. Repeat that. Yeah, one day. He, he, he was jury selection, the trial, and the jury deliberation last less than one day. The jury deliberated for 56 minutes and sentenced him to life in prison for rape. A rape that it was obvious from the beginning it didn't commit. His, his, his uh, public defender mounted... It was a public defender, maybe paid for him, but whatever it was, his lawyer mounted no defense, essentially, was uh, totally incompetent, I think was later disbarred, um, and had been disciplined prior to this trial. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a perfect storm of, of, you know, the system letting him down. And 38 years later, he was proven with the help of the Innocence Project, um, as well as others, to have been innocent of this crime in the first place. And it really puts it in, in perspective when you consider that his grandson is 20, and he was 20, when he went to prison. So his grandson is now the same age, and he just got out. He got out 
64 days before we recorded the podcast. So that, uh, what I mean by that is that when he got out, this man sounds like the age as he was when he went in. Yeah. And that is just mind-blowing. And yet, here he is, making a new life for himself, not looking back, not feeling sorry for himself, you know, got his head up, chest out. He's like, his son came in with him. Um, and, uh, you know, I just sit there and go, man, you got all my respect. Like, and, and, and what can I say? I mean, as I said to him, I'm, I'm glad you're here, but I'm sorry you're here. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, was yeah, he, and of course, you know, go ahead. Was he compensated, uh, at all in any way, shape, form? Did he get as much uh, of an, even an apology? I don't remember whether he got any sort of an apology. Most don't. He did um, He didn't. And, he didn't. <laughs> Yeah, so you say, okay, let me correct myself, he didn't. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of so many of these stories at right. once at all times exactly. that I sometimes can't remember all the details, so thank you, because you listened to it today, yeah. and I recorded it a, few, a couple weeks ago, but a few weeks ago. But yeah, um, and compensation is going to be uh, a while in coming, and of course, in Louisiana, there's a cap. I think the most you can get in Louisiana is uh, each each state, and this is a crazy thing too. Eighteen states have no compensation. Right, right. And there are some where the most you can get is twenty thousand or twenty five thousand. I don't mean twenty thousand a year. I mean twenty thousand. Yeah. Um, and there's one I think Montana where the, you can't get any compensation, but you get some education out of it. But there's eighteen where you get nothing, like Kansas. So. So the most he's going to get is I think Louisiana caps out at. Two hundred fifty thousand, but you can't pay that over ten years. So, for his thirty-eight years in prison, what does that mean? That's um, I, it's hard to do the math, but it's obviously way less than ten thousand a year. It was about seven thousand dollars a year for his time in, in yeah. maximum security prison in Angola, which, of course, you know, Angola prison, yeah. you know, one of the worst prisons in the world. It's called Angola because it was a slave plantation and it was yeah. populated by slaves from the country of Angola. Yeah. And it still is basically a slave plantation. Yeah. And as he said, when he first went there, he was picking cotton. Like, literally picking cotton. Yeah. Can't even. Like, no. And he, you know, and, 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 and you know, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's all, it's, it's all so hard to comprehend. I mean, 38 years is, is just an impossible number to even conceive yeah. of. L- let me segue for a second here. I have a dear friend who served 27 and a half years for a crime he did not commit. And a long time ago, he and I had a conversation while he was still inside with me suggesting to him, you know, a plea. Why don't you, why don't you just take a plea and, you know, you could get home sooner than, you know, 15 years from now. And he turned the question around on me and he said, well, Sharon, think about the worst crime you could be accused of. The worst crime, but you didn't do it. And you could get a reduced sentence if you just said that you did it. Would you agree to that? You know, the worst crime that you could imagine. And of course I told him, no, no, of course not. Who would, who would in their right mind and, you know, proper thinking, uh, admit to a crime that they did not do? So this beautiful man remains with that mark for the rest of his life unless we can find the resources to change that and that's been you know one of the things it's like you know for people like us it's like you really need you know like a a a solid law firm that would put the resources out because there's no money payoff necessarily at all in these cases and so a lot of people um 
just live with it once they get out of prison, even though they were not guilty of their crime. Right. It isn't as ironic for, for someone like your friend like, to plead innocent and they send you to prison, but if you plead guilty, they'll send you home. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. It's, just, it's, a, it's a totally, it's like backwards, upside down, Alice in Wonderland, but it's not funny. It, it's really, it's just a tragic uh, uh, system that's so broken and it needs to be fixed. And, you know, I would say, too, for people, because I get asked this question a lot, like, what can your average person that's listening to the show, what can they do? Well, what you can do is you can make noise, right? You can, you first of all, vote. Serve on juries, vote. Vote, vote, vote. Vote in district attorney's races, where your vote really matters a lot, because not that many people vote in district attorney's races. And go on social media and, and, and talk about this stuff. And go to websites like innocenceproject.org or the Anthony Citizen Coalition and learn. And, and there's, there's going to be a, a tab on there that says get involved. It'll tell you how to get involved. Write letters to people on the inside. It means so much to, to you know, find someone on the inside that you think might be innocent or might even be just sentenced to a crazy sentence that they don't deserve. Show them that you care. And, you know, and then make noise. Like I said, like, everybody knows somebody. If, you know, if you must know a friend who works at a, at, a, at a television station or somebody who's a journalist or knows somebody who's a journalist or go to a, a law school or talk to a, you know, there's, there's only so, the world is actually pretty small. Mm-hmm. And so, and you never know, you could be in a diner talking to a friend about it. There's somebody at the next table that's listening. You know, you got to, I, I always say I've seen too many miracles to stop believing in miracles. But it starts with being noisy about it, you know. I mean, look, I wish I could take on every case. I'm mm-hmm. sure people listening mm-hmm. go, yeah, I wish I could get Jason mm-hmm. Tate. And I try to do as much as I can. But there's a lot of people out there like me that if they were just aware of certain cases, you know, then, you know, they would they would try to do something. Um, so you know, there's lawyers out there who will take cases pro bono. Yeah. You know, you got to just keep knocking on doors yeah. um, until... You know, until you find a way out, because it, it, look, there's a hundred, probably a hundred thousand or more innocent people in prison in the United States. Yeah. A lot of them, some of them, are listening to the show now, um, and hopefully, there's people out there who can advocate for them and, yeah. and you know, and get them home because that's, right. that's what that's what needs to happen. That's exactly right. Are you concerned um, under Trump and Jeff Sessions that the the gains, the small gains anyway, that we've uh, made for the prisoner class will be will be lost. Just this week, a disappointment uh, when the um, Center for Constitutional Rights failed to get relief for those stuck in solitary here in California. They sort of have this, well, well you're not in solitary, we'll put you over here, but... They're treating you as though you were in solitary, the same rules and regs. So you're really still in those same conditions. And the Center for Constitutional Rights that brought the class action lawsuit a few years ago came back to adjudicate, and they lost. The judge said, "Nah, well, you know, there's only so much these prisons can do with the numbers of people and where they're housed and how they're housed. So that's, that was a terrible setback in my mind. Did you hear anything about that? I didn't hear about that particular case, but it's obviously totally twisted reasoning. You're going, okay, the prisons are overcrowded, which California has been uh, operating illegally for so many years. You know, those are the federal courts that you have to, you know, you're overcrowded. You can't, it's, it's, you're violating people's rights to school and usual punishment. But they just haven't cleared out the, the prisons as much. And now they're using it as an excuse to mistreat inmates by virtue of the fact that they're too crowded. But that's like... 
that's like sucking and blowing at the same time. You can't do that, right? So I don't really understand that ruling. Um, I could see how he could have twisted, could have gotten to that, but it just doesn't make any real sense because not, the, the, you know they created a problem and then the then the problem is a result of that problem, which has already been ruled illegal. And they're saying, well, because of that, we can't do anything. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But you know, look, the good news is that. The overwhelming number of people in prison in, in, in this country are in state prisons, in jails, local jails, mm-hmm. and not in the federal prisons. So as much as this administration obviously is going to be as backwards as it can be and going to reverse as many of the positive gains that have been made over the years as they can, the state systems, you know, there's a lot of awareness and there's a lot of momentum for states to, you know, uh, reduce their even Louisiana just reduced their prison population by a, a significant amount. Louisiana, which is the you know the most highly incarcerated state in the country, um, you know, and obviously in the deep south, they've just you know passed some modest criminal justice reforms that have led to the release of last I heard like fourteen hundred inmates um, and growing. So um, you know there there is. There's more awareness than ever, thanks to you and other people like you and some of the stuff that I'm doing and Scott and mm-hmm. making a murderer and serial and the night of and all these things. So I, I think that, and also, you know, conservatives, they don't like it either, right? A true conservative is, is, is opposed to big government. And mm-hmm. mass incarceration is, is big government at its worst. So we do have allies on the right as well, and I think that now is the moment where we're going to see a real change happening, but it's going to require everybody doing exactly what I said before, which is getting active, signing petitions, writing letters, calling congressmen, running for office, voting, you know, like, it's it's not, it doesn't take that much time. I know people are listening, are busy, they're sitting there, they got two jobs, three jobs, they're trying to make ends meet, but that everybody can do. And there's no excuse not to do it. And you see what happens when people do do it. Like just in, in Alabama, they just elected a Democratic senator, Doug Jones, who's very good on these issues. I met with him recently. You know, we have to get people like that in office, and we have to get good prosecutors in as well. I mean, it's it's just super important, and we are. I mean, Philadelphia just elected a fantastic guy. Um, you know, there's there's real. There's real progress, and we're not going to stop. And uh, and I'm going to keep, like I said, for the for the people that are inside, I'm going to keep fighting until I until I got nothing left. You know. Hey, if you had all the power in the world <laughs> in the three minutes we have left or less, um, what would you do to fix the system? Where would you start? And I think somebody might be calling in with a question, but they may be too late. But answer answer if you can. What would you do? You got all the power in the world to change the system. Yeah, and I'm going to say it again before I answer it. If anyone's interested in learning more, follow me on Instagram. at it's Jason Flom, and I'm always talking about the stuff. But if I had all the power in the world, I would decriminalize drugs. I'd tax them, just like that's the way things are going now. Um, like they've done in other countries successfully with no negative side effects. I would eliminate mandatory sentencing entirely and give the power back to judges and take it away from prosecutors. I would... I would institute prosecutorial and accountability measures so that when prosecutors break the rules and deliberately um, 
uh, yeah, deliberately yeah. Yeah. you know break the law and just to, just to process cases. Um, you know, they would be held accountable, just yes, like people should. in every other profession That's are. Right. Every other profession, That's right? right? Jason, if you screw up on the radio, you get fired. We got one caller. Let's listen to uh, whatever Tim has to say. Go ahead, Tim. Hi. I just, um, I've been listening intently, and it's a very good conversation. I just wanted to ask if if you had any ideas for the, for prison... I'm sorry. Can if there's any positive, any any positive thing, or what do you do with people who are guilty? I guess is what I want to ask. Well, people who are guilty, depending on what the crime is, are to be sentenced appropriately. But whatever that is, if it's a violent crime, and you know, then then they need to be locked up, but but not for the rest of their lives. I mean, we we need to go towards a system like other Western countries have, where. You're locked up and you're rehabilitated, and then eventually you're released. And we know that people age out of crime as well. And Scott okay. and Scott Budnick has proven this over and over again yeah. in the way that he's been able to take people who had violent past and ultimately turn them into productive and law-abiding citizens, yeah. or help them not turn them into it, help them become, you know, and fulfill their true potential. I. I like what Brian Stevenson says, that everybody is better than the worst thing they've ever done. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you Tim. Hey, Jason Flom, that was a beautiful um, way to end uh, this show this evening, and I want to thank you so very much. It's That's a long conversation to have with somebody on the radio, but I guess you're used to it doing your podcast. Say say how people can reach that podcast again. So it's Wrongful Conviction is the podcast. It's available on iTunes, uh, Spotify, Pandora, uh, Google, uh, anywhere you listen to the podcast, you can find it. Good. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, and we'll talk again, I'm sure, if you ever find yourself uh, coming up this way. Like if you want to go visit Pelican Bay, get in touch with me, Mikasa Esukasa. And I um, want to thank Michael for being a great engineer. And uh, Jason, keep on keeping on, my man. Smoke two joints. Right We're in it together. All right. We'll talk to you later. Peace out. You've been listening to Thursday Night Talk on KHSU. Thank you to our host, Sharon Fennell, and to our guest, Jason Flom. We love to get feedback on our programs. Please email Thursday Night Talk at khsu.org and like our Facebook page, Thursday Night Talk on KHSU. 